Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at the whole of uh, 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 15. Uh, uh, we did a series last year on uh, of those chapters, uh, and before we uh, do our uh, series next uh, this year, which will start from chapter 16 next week, uh, we're doing this big uh, overview of 1 to 15 uh, to help us all catch up uh, to be on the same page uh, and uh, be ready for, for next week. Uh, so let me lead us in prayer uh, as we uh, look through 1 Samuel chapters 1 to 15. Heavenly Father, we pray that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit, uh, through your Word, uh, as we look at it together. Uh, please point us to your Son and open our hearts to love Him and serve Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our country has recently experienced a partial change in leadership, hasn't it? Uh, among the other changes, we have a new Prime Minister and a new Minister of Health. And we're waiting to see the difference uh, this fresh leadership might make to our government. Leadership plays an important part in the success or failure of any group, organization, or even country. Uh, and this is true even among God's people. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw in 1 Peter 5 how God wants leaders in His church to be and to act. And here in 1 Samuel, the issue of leadership in God's Old Testament people is a big one as well. 1 Samuel is set a thousand years before Christ. And more than 400 years before this, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the Promised Land. But there in the land, they often rebelled against God. Whenever they turned from God to idols, he would send enemies to conquer them and oppress them. And when they cry out to God, he would send them a judge, a savior, a leader to, to put things right. And this judge would defeat their enemies and win their freedom. And as long as the judge was alive, the people would worship God. But after he died, they'll start to follow idols again. And this cycle happened over and over. And each time around the cycle, Israel would fall deeper and deeper, deeper into sin until by the end of it, even the judges were awful characters. The nation was breaking apart. There was civil war. There was the grossness of immorality and degradation. Idolatry was, was pervasive. And even the priests of Yahweh, the one true God, were corrupt. The situation at the start of 1 Samuel is summarized in the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The books of Samuel, or rather the book of Samuel, because 1 and 2 Samuel originally one book, tell us how God rescued Israel from this situation. But by the end of 2 Samuel, the nation is united, and Israel is about to enter the golden age of her history. But the book starts with an obscure man, with an obscure genealogy, from an obscure place. He was married to a godly woman named Hannah, who was childless and oppressed. Hannah cries out desperately to God. She promised that if God gave her a son, she would give him back to him. And eventually God reversed her situation. And so in chapter 2, she sings a song of thanksgiving, recounting how God reverses situations over and over again. She warns the proud in chapter 2, verse 3, Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God is the judge. And then she says in verse 6, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. All right. The Lord lifts up and he brings down. And then in verse 10, she speaks prophetically, 
that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, that he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. God will exalt his king. God is a judge. He lifts up and he brings down. He will exalt his king. And as we read of Eli and his sons, as we read of Samuel, and as we read of Saul in 1 Samuel 1 to 15 today, we will see God, the judge, lifting up and bringing down. And this will set the scene for the second half of 1 Samuel, which will begin next week, where we will be introduced to the man whom God would exalt as his chosen king. Hannah gave her son Samuel back to God as she promised. And so Samuel, from an early age, served God at the tabernacle under Eli the priest. Now, Eli was a godly man, but quite ineffective in controlling his own sons. They were wicked priests, who stole the parts of the offering that were meant only for God, and who committed sexual immorality under the guise of religion. God warned Eli, but they didn't repent. For Eli honoured his sons more than he honoured God. And then God began to speak to Samuel in an audible voice, which was very rare. God gave him a message of judgment against Eli's family and continued to speak to him about other things. Samuel's words were always 100% accurate. They always came true. And so he was known as a prophet of the Lord. God raised up Samuel, but he was also about to bring down Eli's family. For God is judge. He lifts up and he brings down. And let that be a warning for all of us. If we misuse the positions that he has given us that does not escape God's notice, he will deal with us, either now or at the last day, which is worse. In chapter 4, the focus turns to the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt among his people. The Israelites thought they could manipulate God into fighting for them by bringing the Ark to the battlefield. And so God allowed the ark to be captured by their enemies, the Philistines. The sons of Eli were also killed in the battle, just as God said. And Eli himself fell down and died when he heard the news about the capture of the ark. The God who raised up Samuel brought down Eli and his sons as he promised. But now his own ark was in exile. The Philistines took the ark and back to their town of Ashdod, put it in the temple of their god Dagon. And by the next day they found Dagon fallen face down on the floor before the ark of God. Then they put him back, but the next day they came to the temple, he's lying in the door with his head, head and hands broken off and only his body remaining. And then God attacked the people of Ashdod with tumors, with growths on their skins, and the people of the city sent the ark away to another town, Gath. Gath also could the same thing. So they decided to send it to Ekron, and the people of Ekron said, no way. And after various negotiations, the ark was sent back to Israel on a cart, pulled by cows with guilt offerings, Philistine style. The ark of God was back from exile, and Israel didn't do anything to make it happen. Leaders are important, aren't they? But they're not too important. God brings down the leaders of his people. Who have failed, but their failure doesn't mean that God is impotent. God is the true king. He cannot be tamed or manipulated, so please don't try. 
He wants us to obey him, not use him. Uh, for example, he doesn't want us to serve him so that he can make our life better. He's not a means to an end. He's the God who is to be worshipped and obeyed simply because he deserves it for who he is and what he has done. And don't ever think that he needs us to defend him or protect him. So much evil has been done in the name of God because people think they need to be the ones to guard his interests. He wants us to love him and honor him and obey him. But he is God, and he doesn't need human leaders to look after him. Twenty years later, in chapter 7, Samuel is clearly the judge of all Israel. And he was a good leader who led them in God's ways. He challenged Israel to put away all their idols and commit themselves solely to him. He prayed for God's people. And in response to his prayers, God gave them decisive victory over the Philistines, regaining the territory that they'd lost uh, since Joshua's time, expanding their influence. And it looked like the leadership problem in Israel was solved. But Israel needed a leader who would be able to lead them in God's ways permanently. And Samuel couldn't do that. For in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was old, and he appointed his sons as judges over Israel, but they accepted bribes, and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel seized the chance to ask for a king instead. They wanted a king who would, in the words of chapter 8, verse 20, judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, God's solution to the military problems was for them to keep the covenant. Because if they obeyed God, he would fight their battles. He always did. That was his promise. But they wanted to place their security in the hands of a king because they didn't really trust God. They didn't believe in, they didn't rely on the promise he made. There's nothing wrong with kingship per se, that the book of Deuteronomy even made provision for Israelite monarchy and told them what their king would be like, should be like. But having a king for them was not trusting God for their security. Now, having a king and keeping the covenant are not necessarily mutually exclusive. It all just depends on why you want to have one. But they wanted one because they didn't trust God. And friends, there are lots of things in the world that are like that, aren't there? Family, money, work, all blessings from God. They're good things. But if our ultimate security comes from them, well, that's already wrong, isn't it? Good leaders are a blessing, but if we think that they are the ones who can keep us spiritually safe, and as long as we follow them that we're okay, well, we're in danger of becoming like the Israelites. Even institutions like the Anglican Church can go wrong, and in some countries they have. Your security doesn't lie in being Anglican, or even in being an evangelical, but it, belong, but it belongs in belonging to Jesus. Real security comes from him. God gave his people the leader they wanted. And in chapter 9, Samuel anointed Saul as king. He was an outstanding young man, and yet humble and quite self-effacing. He had opponents, some troublemakers who despised him, but he just kept quiet and proved his leadership by raising an army and rescuing an Israelite city attacked by Ammonites. He became very popular, and the people who wanted to execute and people wanted to execute the, the ones who had, the, those who had, who had opposed him. But he graciously said no 
They acknowledge that God is the one who rescued Israel. So far, so good. But it's not good enough just to start out well. Many people are enthusiastic about living for Jesus when they are young, but as they grow older, instead of growing more like Christ, they, they go the other way. You don't be like that, do you? And if you think you might be going that way, then, then repent and ask God to help you. Saul went that way. And so many years later, in chapter 13, Saul and his son Jonathan, they were facing a battle. The Philistine army turned out much bigger than anticipated. The Israelites were very outnumbered, both in manpower and in technology. Israelites who were waiting to face them got scared, and little by little, they started to leave. Saul couldn't do anything because he'd been told to wait for seven days for Samuel to come and pray for God's favor and offer the burnt offering. Seven days, there's no Samuel. The rest of the troops start to desert him. Saul panics. He offered the burnt offering himself, which he's not meant to do. And just as he's finished the offering, Samuel arrives. You have done foolishly, he says. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever and ever. But now, verse 14, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And then Samuel left. Saul's army was depleted, hardly had any weapons, but God gave the Israelites a mighty victory. And the human hero of that day, the instrument that God used, was Jonathan. And so you see, actually, the fact that the Israelite army was so severely disadvantaged actually showed God's greatness in winning the battle on their behalf. And the fact that God used Jonathan, Saul's son, would have strengthened Saul's claim to a dynasty. Um, and, and so the delay and the depletion was actually still part of God's plan. All Saul had to do was to trust him and obey his word. But, but Saul failed to do that. and God was displeased. Israel would need a leader who would trust God, even when things look bad, and therefore obey him. Friends, when are we tempted to stop trusting God? When do we panic and say, okay, I'll have to take this action even though I know it's not what God wants? Some workers succumb to pressure to do unethical things at the office when they don't think they can trust God to look after them if they lose their jobs. Some of our young people are tempted to date unbelievers when they get a little bit older and they don't trust that God knows what's best for them, whether or not they get a partner to marry. When are you tempted to sin because you think you need to protect your own interests or even the interests of God's people? No, 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 no. Trust God and do what is right. Don't be like Saul. Saul's failure was because of a heart problem that he had. That became even clearer in chapter 15. God, through Samuel, commanded Saul to attack and destroy everything that belonged to the Amalekites. God's king was going to be God's instrument to bring his judgment upon them. And Samuel, well, he killed everyone, destroyed their possessions, as he was told, except for their king and the best of their sheep and cattle. And God regretted making Saul king. 
As Samuel goes to confront him, we incidentally read that Saul had set up a monument to himself, and we wonder what happened to that humble, self-effacing leader he was when he was a young man. And when Samuel confronts him for his disobedience, Saul both changes the terms of the mission, distorting the word of God, and shifts the blame for his failure to his troops. But the people, he says, took, the, took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. The Lord your God might have been a Freudian slip, but it's a slip that reveals his heart. And Samuel says to him after that, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. And then he adds, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Friends, God, what God wants from his people is not more religious activity, but humble obedience to his word. Just because we are doing something for God doesn't necessarily mean that God be pleased with it. What we need to do is to make sure that we are obeying him. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul seems to repent, but when you look at what he's actually saying, he's actually asking forgiveness from Samuel rather than from God. And then he repeatedly begs Samuel to come back with him, and eventually it becomes clear that what he really wants is not to lose face. He wants to go on with the charade of worshipping the one that he calls the Lord your God. For somewhere along the way, Saul's religion had become a religion of exteriors. He had rejected the word of God, he had failed to trust him, but he was still doing the motions, putting on the show, with no true repentance from the heart. And that is the kind of religion that God despises. If you're someone for whom religion is just an outward show for your family or your friends or whatever, if you've rejected the word of God and you don't want him to rule your life because you don't trust him, please cry to God for mercy. Don't look to someone else to forgive you, like Saul did. Don't look to your husband or your wife, to your parents or to your children, to your growth group leader or your pastor. It doesn't matter what they think. Stop putting on a show. Ask God for mercy from the heart. And he will forgive you. Jesus died to pay the price so that he could do that. But you have to come to him. And friends, let's not look to church leaders like Saul for spiritual leadership. Leaders who build monuments to themselves, who are concerned for their own egos, who go through all the motions on the outside to preserve their position, but whose faith and obedience has gone out the window. Leaders who sin but are more concerned about what other people think of their sin than what God thinks. Who might humble themselves before their fellow man in order to stay in power, but do not humble themselves before God. And let's make every effort not to be leaders like that. God is the judge. He lifts up and he brings down. And he will certainly bring down leaders like that in the end. So, brothers and sisters, we have seen today that God's ancient people needed a leader who was truly godly, a leader who was permanent, a leader who was after God's own heart. 
And over the next few weeks, we will see God's solution to the problem. He will exalt his king, but even then it's an imperfect solution and a temporary one. But it does point forward to the ultimate solution that would come through Jesus, God's true and perfect leader. Jesus is a leader like Eli who functions as a priest, representing us to God and God to us, and who offered himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, and who is always interceding in heaven for us. But who, unlike Eli's sons, is perfectly godly and uncorrupted, and who, unlike Eli, will judge with righteousness those who dishonor the holy God. Jesus is also the leader who, like Samuel, functions as a prophet, who speaks the word of God with 100% accuracy, who is in fact God's word made flesh perfectly and accurately representing him. Jesus is our true prophet, who calls God's people to be fully devoted to him, and better, enables us to do so by giving us his spirit. He's a leader like Samuel, who prays for his people, intercedes for them, but does not grow old and die like Samuel, for he has been raised from death and reigns forever. So unlike Samuel, he's a permanent leader, does not need to be replaced, and can save forever those who trust in him. Finally, and most importantly for the flow of one Samuel, Jesus is also a leader who, like Saul, is king, but who really is quite unlike Saul in the kind of king that he is. He is the king whose heart is always pure, whose motivations are always blameless. He is a king who is always obedient to the word of God the Father and leads us to obedience as well. The king who is not corrupted by power, who seeks not his own honor, but sacrifices himself for our salvation and the glory of the Father. The king who trusted his Father, even when things were grim, went all the way to the cross and who was raised from the dead. He is the king who looks after his people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the best leader we could ever have. He is our prophet, priest, and king. All our lesser leaders will have flaws, but we will always have Jesus. And for that, we are grateful indeed. As we close, I'd like to speak to anyone watching this who is still outside Jesus' kingdom. Jesus might be the perfect leader, but unless he is your leader, unless he is your king, he's of no benefit to you. He's meant to be your leader because God has exalted him as king. God has raised him from the dead, he's given him authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. But, but if you defy him as your leader, you actually make him your enemy, and you make yourself gods. And Jesus will one day destroy those who persist in their rebellion, as Saul was meant to destroy the Amalekites. He will judge with righteousness those who dishonor God, as Eli was meant to discipline his sons. Jesus is the perfect leader, but also the perfect judge. He lifts up and he brings down. And today he is giving you the chance to humble yourself and submit to him as your king.
And that is such a good thing. He's the best prophet, the best priest, the best king you could possibly have. And he really loves you. He died for you so that you could be forgiven of your rebellion. That you could have a fresh start under his loving rule. He could be your king who will lead you and guide you and pray for you and govern you by his spirit, through his word, throughout your life. And then one day he will lift you up to bring you with him to his heavenly kingdom where you will reign with him forever. So please, please, please come to Jesus as your king. He is exactly the leader that you need for this life and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the perfect and just judge of all. We thank you that you bring down and you raise up. And we thank you that you have exalted your King, the Lord Jesus. Please help us to humbly turn from sin and follow him. Please change us to be more like him in our character, that we might indeed honor you and trust you and obey you, as you deserve to be honored, trusted and obeyed. And bring us, we pray, in your good time, to be with him in his glorious kingdom, where we will enjoy his loving rule and reign with him forever. We ask this in his name. Amen.